everybody this is brett and i'm christian and you're listening to the gilded films podcast 1951 year in review Everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Gilded Films podcast. If you have been listening to our previous installment, uh, we talked about the year that was 1951 and the Academy Awards from that year, and see, and we saw if truly they got the best picture correct. Uh, listen to that episode. I won't spoil it because it's a pretty good episode with some pretty good films and a lot of heavy hitters there alongside, of course, the winner, which was an American in Paris. So I had a good time with there. As usual, we're back here with our sort of six others that weren't necessarily nominated for the big award that night. Um, was anything nominated? Okay, so it had like the ones that we'll be talking about didn't have that many to their name in terms of nominations. One of them had no nominations, but they're good. They're fun. We're going to have a good time. And yeah, so hello to me. It's Christian. If I'm stumbling around, boy, I had a week. Uh, I'm starting my new life as a teacher. So this week has been a lot of meetings, 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 and a lot of working overtime to set up a classroom. So yeah, but I still found the time to watch these movies. So that's cool. And hello to Brett, as usual. He's here because, you know, He's the one who sets this up. <laughs> hello, hello. And welcome back to Owen Owen Daly. Yeah. Right? No, that okay. is. I wanted to make sure I got the last name right because I knew the first name. So welcome back to Owen <laughs> Daly, um, who was our co-host in the last episode. And you're back. Yes, I'm back. Um, it was a good enough time in the first episode for me to come back, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> That's probably a terrible thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> not at all not at all love to hear it well yeah we we do have a number of films here six films to talk about from 1951 along with some honorable mentions that i'm sure will show up in our personal awards later um but yeah each pick two as always and we were just talking before we got on that we're all pretty excited to dive into a strong group of films and so how are we all feeling are we good to go ahead and dive in all right well, I have got our first one here, and it is Ace in the Hole. And so this is film directed by Billy Wilder from this year. Um, when originally released, it was called The Big Carnival, um, which, which I can see why. I personally prefer Ace in the Hole as a title, but um, that they both kind of make sense in their own ways. So this is the story of a, a journalist, newspaper writer named Chuck Tatum, who is played by Kirk Douglas. And he's kind of made his way around the big cities, New York, Detroit. There are some others that he mentions where he's written for big publications and he's still ended up on the down and outs, um, been kicked out, and he ends up in New Mexico. And so he comes to a small town paper and basically says, you know, I'm your guy, bring me on. No problem. You can pay me $50. And the guy's like, well, we'll we pay 60 And so he's like, cool, that works for me. Um Almost immediately on the job, this kind of, I guess a year later on the job, I should say, 
this somewhat story comes up in which a man is trapped in a cliff dwelling. Um, he is out looking for ancient Native American artifacts and gets trapped um, in a collapse. And so this seems like something where they're like, okay, kind of a big deal, but we'll get him out. No problem. But Douglas's character is like, no, I'm going to make something out of this. I've been trying to work my way back into New York, back to all these places. I need a big story. I'm going to milk this for all I can get. And he basically takes steps to turn it into a big spectacle. He writes uh, really outlandish pieces on it. It draws national media attention. He basically secures things so that it takes longer to get the man out than it normally would if they took the best steps. Um, and obviously there are complications that come with that. And so it kind of turns into a real moral dilemma of the media and this newspaper man kind of taking things into his own, own hands and doing some really unethical things. And so in that regard, I really enjoyed the film. I think it is really kind of uh, a bleak and dark in a sense, and doesn't really have a very optimistic outlook on media and, and the individuals involved in this story. Even the wife of the man who gets stuck, who's played by Jan Sterling, she is one who's kind of like, you know, I honestly don't really care if he gets out. I've been wanting to leave him for a while. Anyway, he kind of wrote me into this life. I want to get out of here. And so there's not really a likable character in the movie. There are some that are fine, but like, especially the lead character, you know, Tatum, he is about as unlikable as it comes. Very unethical, but I was pretty fascinated by him and this, what he is willing to do to get back and be the big newspaper guy that he believes he is. Um, so yeah, it, it's a very pessimistic look, I think, at um, media exploitation and what that can turn into, even for a small town in the middle of New Mexico. And I found that really fascinating. Uh, the film itself, as much as I enjoy the concept, sometimes I think it's, I don't want to say it dragged, but when, as I'm thinking back on the movie, I'm more, I'm more intrigued by the concept than I am by what's shown on screen itself. Still really enjoyed it. I still think it's a really good movie, but I keep going back to it more for the ideas it has than what I saw on screen, if that makes any sense. So it's a really good movie. Really enjoyed watching it. Um, I don't think it ages quite as well as some of the other movies, just as I've sat with it longer, personally, on an enjoyment level. So interested to hear your thoughts. Um, so I've seen this before just because I love Billy Wilder. I honestly don't remember it. So it was nice to really come back and visit this. It is sort of that low key because I, even I was reading the fun facts. It's really like a low key movie from him because it's wedged in there between Sunset Boulevard, which is like my number two favorite of all time masterpiece. And then also um, in 53, he did Stalag 17 with uh, William Holden, which I really like that one as well. So it's like you have this in here. Um, definitely get it about the media and all of that. Um, when I was thinking of it, it's almost like the TMZ thing that we go through with a lot of that and like that invasion of privacy, but also like we want to sensationalize stories that really are mean nothing. Just get this guy out of the damn hole, but instead let's actually hold him up in here, do something that seems more impossible when there's probably like an easy exit out here. Let's make literally the big circus. And I do like the title of the big circus much better than Ace in the Hole, obviously because they have like an actual circus type carnival fair set up with this whole thing which is just like in and of itself kind of great. Um, but I also do like these kind of movies that 
tell you that sometimes the media can be, you know, idiots, the crooked media to quote an, you know, an idiot himself. <laughs> but uh, I'm thinking back to like something like network. Um, I'm obviously, I don't know if Brett, you've seen network. Um, but yeah, Owen and I probably have, cause Owen, you've seen a lot of movies. So, <laughs> um, but in that case, it's like what sort of sliminess the media can go through to get the story that they want. And even looking back on something like his girl Friday with such how fast paced and whatever, with that is it's like going the distance to get the story so and it's literally just like get this guy out of the damn hole let him live his life hopefully yeah i i really appreciate this movie for how unflinching it is and how unwilling to redeem its main characters it is because i mean i feel like you could imagine a lesser movie seeking to redeem the kirk douglas character and by the end of the film well, basically throughout the entire film, you just hate the choice. Like, you know, the choices he's making are really horrible. And the things that he's doing are, in the end, quite um, violent towards a lot of lives involved in the story. And I think the Kirk Douglas casting is kind of the perfect choice for this film. Because what I, a lot I get about Kirk Douglas as a person and a performer is how just untrustworthy he is yet somehow charming at the same time and he really sort of puts that to very good use in this where he he sort of is this almost city person coming into this country town exploiting these people to get his way out and what the costs are of his way out aren't necessarily great it's just he's kind of determined to exploit this I would say probably the most redeemable character in the film is the uh, Richard Benedict husband character who obviously we don't we see in bits and pieces we don't see a lot of him but I think he's if he weren't as great as he is I think the film would struggle a bit more because you wouldn't necessarily sort of care for this person who you really only see stuck under all the fallen rubble and but no I think it's a really great film and I mean, Billy Wilder had only been directing for, I think, a decade prior. I know he started as a writer. And, like, even if you look at the films in the first decade of, I mean, you mentioned Sunset Boulevard, he even did The Last Weekend and other films prior. And this is just, another, I think, another great one from him. And whether I take issue with it being called Ace in the Hole of the Big Carnival, I think I can sort of agree that the Big Carnival might have been a better name because sometimes Ace in the Hole, while a nice ring to it, I don't necessarily get how it relates to the story. Mm. Yeah, that, that's a good point about the character because I was waiting, I was just waiting the whole time for this redemption arc to show up at the end. Like, you know, movie from the 1950s, he's going to have some like realization that what he's doing is wrong and like, you know, but no, it is, it is really, it, it sticks true to that. Um, and it's definitely noirish in that aspect, I think in a lot of ways. And yeah, the scenes between Douglas and Benedict's in the dwelling itself, I think are really effective just because, you know, Benedict's character really trusts, really trusts Tatum. I mean, he thinks he's doing the right thing for him. And so when things get a little more complicated, I think it makes it that much more kind of heartbreaking in a sense of what this guy has done and the fallout of that. So yeah. And it doesn't stray away from that. 
I'm even thinking of, um, and obviously it's so, it's so recent, so I won't spoil anything, but Nope, Nope kind of has the same effect with how far somebody, and there's a particular scene. Yeah. There's a, see, yeah, no spoilers. There's a particular scene with the media. There, that's all I'll say. <laughs> oh no, no, you spoiled The media's in it. <laughs> Maybe, maybe not, maybe, maybe. so. Yeah, the, the whole media thing is obviously very fascinating. And I think that's part of the reason behind this film's only Oscar nomination, which it was received one nom for story and screenplay. Um, and obviously, you know, Wilder was involved with writing a lot of this films. This is that's the case here as well. And so it was definitely recognized for that. Have you seen on the Wikipedia page what the legacy of this movie is? Mm, it is an episode so. of it is an episode of The Simpsons. It says <sighs> in 1992, The Simpsons episode Radio Bart largely references the storyline of Ace in the Hole, where Bart is uh, he lowers a radio into a well, and then using a wireless microphone to broadcast his voice from it, he convinces the public that a boy named Timmy O'Toole had fallen in it, prompting news coverage and charity campaigns. And it is a very good episode. Yeah. Bart would do that. So that makes sense. (laughs) All right. Well, well, that is Ace in the Hole or the big carnival, however you want to refer to it. Uh, Any further thoughts on that film before going on to our next one? You're going to have to put a nope spoiler before this episode. That's my (laughs) bad. (laughs) I think... um, I think I I almost want to explain. I think Kirk Douglas, while really good in this, I I like I think his lack of an Oscar nomination this year, or did he? Or maybe I'm wrong. Did he get? No, he didn't. Was probably just so. due to internal competition between this and the detective story. And yeah, personally speaking, I think this is the much greater performance and really gets into how sort of almost I mean. Kirk Douglas isn't a nice person as a person if you if you tend to believe the rumors of things that he did to mostly Natalie Wood when she was young um but I think he sort of he always puts that into his characters and even he's sort of one of the most known I guess film noir actors in how villainous he can be I think of something like out of the past um, from 1947 as having a really great turn by him but I, I think this is a really great performance and while the 1951 best actor category is is mostly strong I think were Kirk Douglas to be included in there would be a much stronger list yeah definitely I think it's a strong performance too and I totally agree because I watched Detective Story as well and they're similar in some ways but I agree I think this is a stronger performance that gets a lot more you know a lot deeper into the actual character and his motivations and I, I also think um the lack of a nomination for john sterling here unfortunately gave us her supporting actress nomination three years later and personally this is the stronger performance than whatever she was tasked to do in the high and the mighty <laughs> all right are we ready to move on to our next film All right. Well, I've got this one as well. Um, We're going to one esteemed director to another 
uh, this time John Huston and his film, The African Queen. And so this one pairs Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn, obviously legends. And it is a story of um, Hepburn's character, Rose Sayer. She works with her brother as a British missionary in East Africa um, in 1914, just before World War One is about to start. Um, they commonly get supplies from Charlie Allnuts, one of the probably one of the best names ever in movies, played by Humphrey Bogart. Um, but things take a turn when German soldiers start coming in. They take over the missionary. Um, Rose's brother is eventually dies, and she's kind of left alone. And then Allnut comes up and says, "We got to get out of here. We've got to get on the water in my boat, which is called the African Queen." Germans, you know, the war is starting up, the Great War. Uh, Britain's, you know, we can't attack the Germans yet. And so we got to get out of here. So along the way, um, they kind of have this, this disagreement about whether they kind of stay put and wait for things to carry on or whether they should basically turn this little boat into a torpedo boat and attack a German warship or a gunboat. And so um, a lot of that is them deciding what to do there. They eventually decide, okay, we're going to go and we're going to see, maybe we'll go and attack this boat. But along the way, of course, because, you know, it's Bogart and Hepburn and they have to do this, a uh, romance forms between them. And so normally something like that, I'd be like, well, of course they're going to fall in love and whatever. But I have to say, I thought the, the romance here was pretty exceptional. Um, just because I think both characters have backgrounds in which they really don't know how to be part of a couple um all not because he's always out on his boat and taking shipments back and forth hepburn because she's been busy as a missionary with her brother and so a lot of it is in it's kind of a little bit of awkwardness and them kind of learning how to be a couple with each other um although informally they they clearly have feelings for each other and those start to develop more and more as the film goes along and i found it really effective um Overall, I, I loved this movie. It combined pretty much exactly what I was looking for in a bit of an adventure that's not terribly over the top, um, but, but kind of grounded, but also very exciting um, with a, an absolute masterclass from the two actors who it's just really lovely to see in a movie together. Um, Hepburn and Bogart, obviously some of the best to ever do it. And I think their chemistry here is absolutely phenomenal. Um, although it's not among their best performances, uh, especially Bogart, who did win an Oscar for this, I think they are both really, really strong and effective to the point where it's hard for me to imagine other actors in these roles with the way they're played. Um, and so I, I think the two of them together and getting to just I just think it's really cool to sit there and witness it. It's like, this was, this was bogey. This was Hepburn coming together, doing this adventure romance. And that's really cool. And fortunately it's a really good movie too. Um, really well directed. It's fun. It has moments of humor that I enjoyed. And so pretty much everything that I was hoping for, and honestly a little bit better than I expected it to be. So it's kind of the the fun movie of the year, I think. It's one that I was found really easy to enjoy. The African Queen, absolutely enjoyed it. Well, good. About time you watched it. Um, I know. I mean, I'm a big fan of both of these people, as we well know. I love me 
Bogart and Katherine Hepburn is like my favorite actress of all time. It is very much fun. Yes. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think I can say much more because I have the same feelings. This is one of those films that I could probably watch once a year. And I think I do and just have a really good time with it. Um, I like the really the background story of it all. I haven't read Catherine's book, which really details all of it. I do own it, though, which is really nice to have. Um, but I do know that the fact that like most of them got sick, except for Bogart and John Houston, because they were the only ones drinking and they weren't drinking the water. They were drinking liquor. So, but of course, Catherine Hepburn seems to get a lot of a, a lot of illnesses because she got sick here and then she got the forever pink eye when she fell in summertime into the Venice Canal. So, um, but no, it's a fun movie and it is definitely one. I think it's on, um, it's on Amazon Prime a lot. It wasn't when I saw it because I own it. But if you ever see it streaming anywhere, it's definitely, and you're not like a big fan of older classic films, it is one that is damn enjoyable for you to watch. Yeah, no, I, I totally have to agree with the both of you. When they, I feel like when they use the phrase, they don't make them like they used to. This has to be a film that I would consider like one of those great sort of examples of how a star's natural screen charisma can really make a film work and I do enjoy uh, Bogart and Hepburn together especially the two of them are sort of known for their own iconic pairs outside of this film I mean you have Bogie and Bacall and Hepburn and Tracy and like I feel like the the, the mix of Bogie and um, Hepburn together is greater for me than any of those collaborations that the two made with their other screen partners I mean I'm now imagining all the films that Catherine Hepburn made starring mm -hmm. um, Humphrey Bogart instead of Spencer Tracy and I really would have enjoyed that much more because I'm, I'm not um, the biggest Spencer Tracy fan um, but no this is just a really fun movie and like it's so physically demanding for all of them like you like Catherine Hepburn is a person if you have a bit of knowledge about her, you know she loved to be out in the wild. You know she just loved to do everything herself. And seeing her get to play a character like that is so wonderful because you can tell while it might be tricky, she's really enjoying playing this type of role because it's full on in the water, cover like covered in dirt the whole time. And then even towards the end of the movie where you get there's big like proclamations of love for each other, it doesn't come out of nowhere like it's really this film really while it's not terribly long it, it's like a good kind of running time but you are able to naturally understand why these two people come to care for each other and I find the romantic scenes towards the end of the film really effective because of how well the two of them have built this chemistry together it's just such a great film and I do sort of have to disagree in that I'm, I think it I would consider it amongst their greatest performances, but their their careers are full of so many great performances mm -hmm. that I can sort of understand not wanting to rank it among their best. But it's like they're really great, strong performances. And it was so I I think this is the second time I've watched the film. And I just didn't have that strong enough memories from the last time I saw it, other than enjoying the two of them. And then this time around, I was just like, I was totally in it. It was a beautiful film to watch as well. It's I recently watched another John Houston movie and and sort of a sort of 
shot on location film in um, Mogambo, and this is the much stronger film. I will say in, in thinking back, the, I mean, obviously this inspired many, many type adventure films like this where you're in a jungle, you're in a perilous situation. I mean, even as nowadays as that Lost City movie with Sandra Bullock mm-hmm. and Channing Tatum, where you have yeah. these kind of dynamic duos, movie star quality people following in the footsteps of these two. But honestly, it's like even thinking about it, because I recently, what did I recently watch? I recently watched Romancing the Stone, which mm-hmm. is another movie that has the same type of feeling and I hated it. And I think because I did not have fun with it, like I have fun with this and you're giving me a look right now. I love Romancing the Stone. <laughs> I my parents, but I didn't get into it. I was just like, eh, they're in trouble, they're oh. in trouble. <laughs> But that's a good point. And it goes to the point that Owen, you made earlier with like, they don't make them like this anymore. Cause I thought of Jungle Cruise that came out last year, which I was not a big fan of. And if you read the fun facts on IMDb, evidently Disney modeled the ride of Jungle Cruise after this. And it makes perfect sense because Jungle Cruise is basically African Queen, but they throw in like these weird CGI elements. And the, the two, I mean, I, I love, um, um, Emily Blunt, but you know, her and The Rock, their chemistry is in that movie. And you know, I, yeah, you can't make a movie like because things like that, they're going to throw in, they're going to make it way over the top. They're going to throw in a bunch of CGI. If you had a movie like The African Queen, which is like very exciting, but still very simple, it's, it's showing in art houses these days, um, which is kind of interesting, but. Also, I'm reminded that we had I'm reminded that we had King Solomon's Mines the year before this. We've had to sit through that and everything. And um, of the two, I guess, back to back years where you have films primarily set in Africa on location shooting. Of course, this is the better of the two, you know, but something to do with Africa at the time where it's like, let's actually show the vast landscape. I guess in this case, it's the rivers of it all. My favorite part, by the way, you can see hippos in this and then Humphrey does his little thing with the hippos. I love that. (laughs) I think what I enjoy more about this film than other sort of African um, holiday films, I like to call them because it's more so about, here's what Africa looks like. Don't you want to visit? Whereas this film, it's more so about basically the entire movie's on the boat. And there's the little scenes at the beginning, which sort of delve into, I guess, a sort of, well, they don't really delve into the African cultures. They're more so about this mission. And I think the fact that it quickly sort of moves by that and we focus more on the chemistry is a much greater choice. And if we're looking at boat movies where two characters are stuck together, I much prefer to watch this than something like Life of Pi. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> Christian, maybe not so much. <laughs> I think they're both nice films. <laughs> well, we can agree to disagree or- on Life of Pi versus Romancing the Stone then. <laughs> Catherine Hepburn is Richard Parker. Richard Parker, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I, I also sort of enjoy this movie for kind of finding out how drunk do I think Humphrey Bogart is in every scene? Oh my yeah. god. Um, like he does have a lot of drunken tirades and just knowing 
how him and John Houston drank together, like I could totally believe that it's not acting and it's just oh, yeah. like, it's, unf- it's unfortunate that I'm sort of making levity of his alcohol issues, but I don't know. That's why I guess the drunken acting is more believable than usual drunken acting is because it's not acting. It's just drunkenness. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Like there was, there was so much gin consumed on that set and, and you could see it like through the performance and yeah, yeah, you're right. Like it. Yeah. You know, it, making levity of whatever, but you know, it is, it does come through in that way. So it's also, this is a weird, I mean, this is a weird fact anyway, but this is 1951. Bogart wins in 52, obviously, the next year over. He's only around alive until 1957. Yeah. So it's such a weird thing to me that, I mean, quote unquote, this is like the latter half of his career. And then he, he doesn't go into the 60s, but like his legacy lives in such, because I've known him in obviously films in the 30s, like very briefly here in the second half of the 30s until the 50s. It's yeah. like a 20 year time span, but he's it's having a very short so time. Much, yeah, he's having so much damn fun in all the movies he's doing. Yeah, I think what makes his legacy, legacy stick as well is just how many character characters character as basically imitations that have been done of him in a lot of animated projects a lot of just I mean I think of something from the 80s the what is it film stars don't die no it's uh the dead don't die or something it's something with Steve Martin where they it's a comedy where they play a lot of film noir clips oh dead men don't wear plaid there we go Mm. (laughs) so that's probably something that kept his legacy going and even I guess the work of Lauren Bacall who obviously yeah. was his his love you know she was out in Africa with them as they filmed this movie um but yeah no it's a really good film and Humphrey Bogart is really excellent and it is very unfortunate that he wouldn't live many years longer because he's such an like he's one of the greatest actors ever I think yeah. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on this as well. I mean, oh I, yeah, he, absolutely. He's one of mine. Yeah. It's, it's also interesting to think that he is going up against performances from Montgomery Clift and obviously Marlon Brando, mm-hmm. where now you think of two actors who kind of revolutionized the, the method of acting. And um, for me, especially the Brando performance. And then here comes Humphrey Bogart with him playing somewhat of himself obviously a fun fun character and a good performance and then winning an oscar i hate to look at it as like a career thing i don't honestly feel there was career performances back then since i i think that's more of like a modern term that we sort of use so but i mean just going against heavy hitters and then winning yeah is like that's something yeah yeah i mean i think his performance is justifiably good enough to be mm-hmm. more than just a tip a quote-unquote career win like mm-hmm. while it is he is going against competition in Clift and Brando it's not one of those I don't know I'm trying to think of someone like Art Carney in in the <laughs> 70s or Jeff Bridges in uh, 2009 it's not one of those well are we ever if we don't award him now we're never going to award him I think it's a legitimately great performance it's really charismatic it's a role like I don't I can't imagine any other actor playing this role other than Bogart mm-hmm. like yeah. 
it's just it's totally in his veins like he's he's just so fun as well I love how this film has so many comedic beats as well like the two of them together like I, I really wish we had more movies of Bacall uh, or sorry not Bacall of Bogey and Hepburn together because based on this one yeah. film I think they had enough screen charisma to like be one of the greatest duos ever oh yeah absolutely I, I agree and yeah and that's why I say like like because I'm the same way. I don't, I expected to come into this thinking like, how did this beat Brando, you know? And as great as Brando is, I'm like, yeah, I, I don't have fault with that win um, because obviously it was his only win. And I agree, like, it doesn't feel like just a, a flat out career. We respect you type of thing. It's one that people would have really enjoyed. And it's just one of those things, like I say, it's not among my favorite of his, but that's, that's just because, you know, he has, Casablanca and in a lonely place and the cane mutiny and uh treasure this year I'm like the guy was just shocked full of amazing performances before we even get to his noir era um that like yeah it, it makes total sense he's great at what he did so yeah and for me the loss isn't the win isn't as looked upon badly because uh, Brando would go on to win three years later for yeah. another great performance in On the Waterfront. I think obviously the loss that hurts most is Montgomery Cliff because he never won. But still, I if I ha- I can't even choose which one I wish had an Academy Award because both of them deserved one in their <laughs> career. But I guess I'm happy that um, Humphrey Bogart didn't leave this world without being an Academy Award winner because his filmography in the 20s years you suggest is worthy of it. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And this is one that I think, um, well, it had the win, obviously, for Bogart. It had a nomination for Hepburn, and then it was also nominated for director for Houston and for the screenplay. And so have to imagine this was right in that 6-7 spot, you know, to get that Best Picture nomination. I mean, I'm sure it was right there. So I would not have minded if this would have been a nominee over Quovetus, but we, we still get to talk about it. So that's okay. All right. Well, that was a great discussion. That, that one's a lot of fun. Um, any other thoughts on the African queen before we move on to our next one? How many times can I say Mr. Allnut? <laughs> I wondered if that was coming out at some point in this podcast. <laughs> She says it a lot in that movie. She does. <laughs> yes. Oh my god, girl! <laughs> I think I think she's giving you a hint. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's uh, speaking of Catherine Hepburn. I could almost envision this being sort of a comeback film for her. I mean, she'd made a lot of films in the late four, like in the decade of the forties, but none sort of reached the pinnacle of, say, her thirties work. And even though she'd made Adam's Rib the year before, that film, while she's the lead up, isn't necessarily all about her. But I think this film acts in a way to be like, Catherine Hepburn is really amazing. And here she's going to show you why she is again. So I guess I'm happy that this results in another nomination for her because I think this was her next nomination after she hadn't been nominated in nine years, I think, before this was the last time she was nominated. So I guess it does sort of act as a, acting comeback for one of Oscar's favorite leading ladies. Absolutely. Love that. Hmm. 
All right. Well, Christian, you have our next one. So go ahead and take us away there. <clears throat> I've been waiting for this moment. Here we go. Michael Rennie was ill the day the earth stood still, but it told us where we're staying. It is the Rocky Horror Picture. No, it's not. <laughs> but I just remember that was a lyric earlier today, and I was like, well, there's my intro. So the film is, of course, The Day the Earth Stood Still. It is a science fiction film, considered actually one of the best science fiction films of the 50s, which is kind of like the Cold War era 50s film where you have giant mutant bugs and spaceships coming down in this case but yeah, there we go so it is directed by robert wise who would then go on to direct such films as uh what like the uh, house on the haunting the haunting that one and of course west side story and sound of music um so it is about a flying saucer that lands in washington washington dc and out emerges cloud cloud two played by Michael Rennie. He is an alien, although he takes sort of the appearance of a just a normal human being guy. Um, and he has sort of a, a, you know, I come in peace situation, but because it's the United States and we are the way we are, even in 1951, we immediately shoot at him. Okay. Things don't go well there because he also has this alien robot behind him named Gort, who's sort of like, you know, his bodyguard. So Anna, I will always love you. There's a lot of copyrighted issues. Okay, friends, whatever. Nobody, look, the copywriting people, this is for educational purposes. Anyway, um, as Klaatu is here on earth, he is taken to Walter Reed Hospital where he then um, escapes and of course dons the appearance of just a typical average American man. Um, he gets into a boarding house where he then meets um, Patricia Neal's character, Helen Benson, and her young son, Billy Gray, um, Bobby Benson, where they sort of become close friends, him and Bobby, while he is also sort of exploring the town and seeing what, I guess, in our now point of view, Earth has to offer. All while his spaceship is still just hanging out, this robot is just hanging out. He comes down to warn us, however, as we now learn, that we need to get our act together as humans, as human beings, not just individuals, because we've created things like nuclear energy, the bomb. This is a big issue of the Cold War. Like, you know, will other countries fight each other with this immense power that we've already seen at the end of World War II? Um, other planets are getting worried at what level of threat that we Earthlings can cause. So it's really a story that on the surface is it feels i mean the poster looks like it's an alien invasion film but in the very depth and heart of it it is a warning it's a good warning to the earth of what our potential loss could be of destroying our own planet with this nuclear energy that we possess now that we're like addicted to in the 1950s and of course we get the famous klaatu barada nikto phrase that gort has sort of like a because Gort, Gort has his own mission, I will say. This is another fun film where it's like, you don't really want to know what's going on because there's a lot of layers to this. I've always really liked this. I remember actually watching this film in a journalism class. Don't ask me why, uh, but the professor was like, yeah, we're going to show you the day the earth stood still and you're going to 
appreciate this. And I did, because I've always really cared for this. But I think it's good. I think it has a lot of, obviously, like I've said, a lot of messaging to it. You can go into it thinking it's one thing, and it's definitely not. So it's a film to really think about. And the theater also that Brett and I have gone to, the little Glenwood Theater, mm-hmm. used to have a Gort life-size statue. And when I last went there in November, December, it wasn't there. So oh. I don't know where it went. Well, yeah, I, I really enjoy these 1950s science fiction films, whether they're good or not, just because I think they're fun. And they're obviously a, a kind of time capsule and they just kind of exist on their own as their own type of things. And this is one that I, I agree. I think it's a really good one. Um, obviously, like you said, a, a big part of it is the message and this idea about nuclear war and the devastation that would bring in that, you know, it's almost like humans are so blinded that, you know, we need something equivalent to an extraterrestrial being to come and talk some sense into us. Um, and of course, you know, it's probably something that would be called, you know, quote unquote on the nose or, or something like that. But I do think it's effective. Um, that's something that was, it, it was always going to be a part of a lot of these movies in the 1950s. Um, and, you know, it, it was a big deal. And I think there was a lot of fear living in that time. And um, I appreciate a film for taking it head on and really diving into it. Um yeah, I, I, I appreciate that it is um, a science fiction film that isn't all just like science fiction first, not an alien invasion type film, but that's all honestly kind of background to the, the human nature story that's being told here. Um, and as much as I love the science fiction elements, I, I just love that because, um, you know, you see it and you think, oh, typical science fiction movie, lots of aliens, things like that. But like you said, it's really not that at all. Um, and I appreciate how much Klaatu is, you know, so similar in so many ways while also being just so much more intelligent, obviously, um, interesting character, um, not one that has a lot of emotions shown, but I like, I think that's kind of the point. And in that case, I think it's played pretty well. Um, I do think that the film is leading up to this final, kind of speech so much that there's no way it can live up to it. Um, the final speech, it's good. It's delivered well. The other day, it's like kind of like almost like I want a little bit more there, you know? And I think part of it's just because the film is leading up to it so much. Like I said, that it was never going to live up to it, but still it's really enjoyable. It's an, it's a, I don't know. I, I, fun watches, maybe a weird way to put it, but it's another one where like, I just sit down and enjoy it while also getting a lot out of it. Um, and kind of the politics too. Like I said, like if you look at the poster of this, I mean, there's a, a hand on the earth and Gort's like taking the lady and it, mm-hmm. it looks like the sci-fi thing, but then it takes a totally different turn altogether. Yeah. Yeah, no, this film could easily sort of, could have disappeared into obscurity being just another typical B-movie sci-fi film. But I think, what helps this film be as strong as it is, is the sort of great talent of those involved. I mean, Robert Weiss was more, was more so at this point, I'd say known for his editing of films. I think he, I think he edited Citizen Kane, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I think that, 
And so obviously he's a great editor. And I think that comes into effect in this film a lot. I think his skills as an editor really mix well with his direction skills and make this so well paced. It's not too long and it really sort of sets its sights on what it wants to do and accomplishes somewhat quite well. I also enjoy the inclusion of Patricia Neal, who is one of those actresses who um, made a lot, not a lot of films, but when she did make films, she's really impressive in them. And I think she really contributes well to this film, sort of grounding, I guess for lack of a better word, grounding it to the earth. Um, and I really enjoy her in this. And I think probably my favorite element of the entire film is the score. I think Bernard Herrmann's work is just like incredible. It's like instantly when I hear music from this film, I go back to watching it because of how iconic the film score is. And that is the Theremins. I forgot. I always forget what the name of those are. The Theremins that really make that score kind of eerie, especially when it opens. But yeah. Um, no, I also like that this doesn't, I don't know, sometimes it's uh, these kind of sci-fi movies, it gives you those romance connections because obviously Patricia Neal would have to fall for the alien unexpectedly, but they don't do that at all. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, and it is, I mean, it's also scary in its own way. I'm also thinking of The Thing from Another World, which is also from this year, which I'll talk about later with honorable mentions and everything. Um, but it's not scary in the sense of, oh, you know, scary looking alien coming to destroy us all. It's scary in that the the actual titular moment that the day the earth stood still, you have to think to yourself, like, if that were to have happened, what the hell's going on? Because obviously I think there's only really, I don't know, the repercussions of it are scary to think about, you know? Yeah. Because even when I was watching it, I'm thinking, well, if that were to happen today, if this movie were like set today or whatever, the medical devices that would turn off for people, like the world would be in a damn panic. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, hopefully they were in a panic here. I mean, shit, but I would be freaking out. I think one thing we can all agree is this is the better version of the day the earth stood still um, much, much better than the um, sort of, I guess, early, well, not 2008 remake yeah. with Keanu Reeves. And um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm also realizing I'm looking at the screen and I realize this figure in my background is sort of like my own gorge. <laughs> um <laughs> Just like watching me while I record this podcast. Got your I, have back. Funny, I have a funny story about that 2008 version. And it boils down to my dad and I snuck into it. <laughs> <laughs> because the day before we went to go see The Curious Case of Benjamin Button at a, the a very small theater where my family is. Brett knows where this is. Brett knows the theater. And... Um, it didn't start for like five minutes and that's enough for my family to be sent over the wall and they gave us free tickets and my dad held the tickets up as we were walking through we didn't exchange them or nothing he's like here's my ticket here's my ticket. and we just walked right on into the day of the earth sits still <laughs> i haven't seen the 2008 version i i looked into it after i watched this one and i just like looked at some of the images and i'm like eh, it doesn't, doesn't look very good so all I remember is there's like there's like a swirl of dust around Gort or something. Yeah, I remember that from the promos and stuff. Yeah. 
Oh, but yeah. And this was one that, um, of the ones we talked about, this is the only one that didn't get any Oscar noms, which is probably not surprising. Um, but I think we would all agree that there were some that it would have deserved. Like you mentioned, no one, the score, um, Definitely, yeah. it definitely is very deserving of a screenplay as well. I think so. I think it's, I think it's just really well made in that you know, you know, oftentimes maybe we don't expect from these type of movies from this time period. You know, they're as much as they are fun. Some of them are not very well made, um, and I don't. That's not the case here. I think it is a really well made movie. I will say it is a good introduction to the what the nineteen fifties would give you with these sort of sci-fi films in the sense of it's like this is the granddaddy of the sci-fi films and everything below it is its child or its ugly mm. grand stepchild what have you i mean there's some good ones obviously with like the incredible shrinking man but then there's just some like why are you made <laughs> you're just made for the drive-in double feature for the teens see i sort of appreciate the 1950s sci-fi films because they're just fun you know a lot of sci-fi films in modern times are always trying to explain the science and are always tinted a bit dark and I just I don't enjoy them as much as like watching something like this and just not turning my brain off but just not having to think about does this make scientific sense like right. i enjoy that much i enjoy that much more than i'm trying to think of like a recent example i mean i guess something like prometheus or alien covenant or well they're not i guess well they're sci-fi films i'm trying to think of something similar to this film that just is trying to explain the signs of it and gets bogged down by it and just isn't fun to watch interstellar is one you could probably think of oh yeah i know people have different opinions on that but that's one where it's like it really tries to go in depth with it and whatnot yeah that is a very good example yeah yeah (laughs) no i get you with that because it's like yeah no Mm -hmm. i think that's my issue with a lot of modern films regardless of genre it's just there's no there's just this is gonna be a tangent um <laughs> the fun <laughs> the the fun is gone you know like I think I hate saying this but in a post I think we're still in the post sort of dark night Christopher Nolan mm. basically let me just blame Christopher Nolan for <laughs> self-seriousness <laughs> when it when it comes to to any genre I I enjoy I enjoy him but he I feel like his in his lasting impact on film has been self-serious being serious about the stories you're telling and not being able to have fun and I sort of miss the charm that something like this film does where it I mean it is very it is serious in the topics it talks about especially towards the end but there's still that levity there where they're allowed to make these alien figures look dumb in a way yeah, because the Gork, yeah. the Gork character creation is like he's just this big stoic figure, and like when you you're not gonna get that in films nowadays. It's gonna be no. something CGI. It's not gonna be rustic and realistic. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I have that same sort of feeling though with um, horror movies nowadays because I don't feel with the modern horror, I can't have fun because there's always that surface level of this is an analogy for grief. For grief. Yeah. It's like okay, it's about trauma, right? It's like hereditary, 
uh, recently they're hereditary the babadook cool now everything wants to be about grief and trauma and uh, like a ghostly figure is the reason behind it. it's like just give me a guy in a chainsaw and a mask and i'm good to go yeah give me some properly proper very like when i think horror movies i guess it's in the more like the very red blood Right, you know, it's right, missing. Yeah. It's missing. It's missing from a lot of film, like the unrealistic red blood, where it's just like, "Ooh, this looks pretty," and, <laughs> like, <laughs> and I guess they're going for realism, you know, even though they're telling yeah. horror stories as well. I agree. Yeah, I just watched Evil Dead two yesterday. I was telling Christian, and yeah, after watching that, I'm like, "Yeah, we need more of that these days." Like, right, blood that like you can tell at times it's just like food colored water. And you know, and things like that. So, the blood represents the loss of of uh, of penguins with paper straws, and it's like, (laughs) (laughs) all right. Well, are we ready to go on to? (laughs) That was the day the earth stood still. (laughs) (laughs) Any further thoughts on that before we go on to our next one? It was not, I don't, we've mentioned, it was not nominated for anything, unfortunately. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I think this is a film that is, I would say, required viewing. If you consider yourself a fan of sci-fi, oh, yeah. it's, as Christian said, sort of the the grandfather, or guess grandmother, of um, of sci-fi films. And it's, it's, it's not too long a watch, you know, it's only like just over 19 minutes, or just over 19 minutes or just under. Yeah. And it's a very quick watch and like you don't get bored. So I think this is a definite must watch. Definitely. All right. Well, Owen, you have our next one. So go ahead and take us away with that. Yes. So from um, American sci-fi, we go to France with uh, Max Orpheus's La Ronde based on the late 1900s. Or the, I guess the play of the same name. Um, yes, how to describe this film? Bas- basic plot details is we follow this master of ceremonies character played by Anton Walbrook, and he tells us the story of these 10 individuals as their lives sort of cross with one another. We're first introduced to uh, the prostitute character played by Simone Signore, and then she has a, st- um, a sort of dalliance with um a soldier who's who then carries on to the next plot and basically we get to know these characters in sort of two sections together each where they're interacting with the character last introduced and then interacting with the new character introduced and then it all sort of comes back around the round as the master ceremonies constantly sings about to we come back to the Simone Sinere uh, prostitute character and just like I this is just one of those great French early French um, I guess pre-French new way films where it's I mean it's just like you're watching a, this like entire performance it's it's a beautiful film and Max Orpheus is just has such a painterly way of telling stories and I think what makes this film a lot of fun is just 
how much fun the master ceremonies character is having as he interacts with all these people being like no you don't want to do that oh you want to go here oh no stop they're not home so it's it's like it's not set in reality you know you're just sort of experiencing these sometimes comedic like there's a lot of great comedy here there's a lot of great levity there's not necessarily a lot of drama in terms of drudge in terms of something like ace in the hole this is just a light nice really a, a, for me a very comforting watch in terms of French cinema and I think it's just an excellent film and I'm happy I guess I introduced it to uh Brett <laughs> since you've not watched this before yes Christian you should go next okay yes um since I have seen it I did like it yeah I liked it I think I liked it more the first time um than I did the last time that I saw it, I guess, but I, and again, it's just because I've been so busy with my life and everything, but it is a nice, simple French film. And it's one that it's not heavy or anything, or like you will have a good time. And I really do like the structure of it, where it is story connected to story, connected to story, all with this master of ceremonies. Um, but no, that's, I mean, that's my simple hot take on it is I did enjoy it. And I'm just realizing that we've seen now Laurent from Max, um, Pronounce the last name. Ophuls, I think. Ophuls? Yeah. Okay. And uh, the earrings. Didn't we We mm-hmm. watch the earrings? Yes. The earrings. The earrings. Of that. Yep. Yeah. So now Brett, because we know Brett loves the French. Yeah. Well, I, I had you go next because I, I think I'm just slightly lower than two of you on this one um, because I did enjoy it. Um, I, I think where I agree most is that just the idea of Laurent itself and Anton Walbrook as the ringleader is perfect. You know, I, I love when it comes back to him, like you both said, and he's kind of leading the whole thing and introducing these characters. And then by the time we reach the end, he's like, we've reached our end and here we are. And, you know, this is the, this giant circle of love. Um, but in the actual like vignettes themselves of, the lovers and their different situations. I just, it it felt like something was missing. I I had trouble latching on to it. Um, Really, you know, trying to find anything that I could really latch onto any of these characters and find some sort of emotional investment. And I don't know. It was just like, as much as I enjoyed it and I appreciate it and I thought it was beautiful and Maxo Fuels, I've I've already kind of fallen in love with because I think he's a really interesting director. I love the earrings of Madame Day. Um, yeah, I just, it was like, this is another story. It goes along and it goes along and it's like, okay, on to the next one. Um, and so maybe I just went in, I don't know. Maybe I just went in not prepared for just how light it is and maybe just need to sit with it and just take it in a little bit more. Um, but it's like, you know, there's this rotating circle of love and yet I can't feel the love, you know, like, I don't feel like any of these characters have any love between them. And that's why I said, like, I, I wrote a review of this. I'm like, maybe there's a joke there or a message that I'm not, I'm not in on, um, you know, that it's playing with a little bit, but I do think it is, you know, it's an enjoyable watch. Like you both said, it's light and kind of airy and something you can kind of just kind of get involved with, but just felt like there was something missing too. Yeah, no, I, I can understand 
sort of not attaching to it because of how vignette it feels where as you're just about the time you're getting to know the people it cuts you off to move on to the next story and that's why sometimes I struggle in thinking of what is my favorite sort of section of this film because while I think that's because of how sort of short it is is Mm -hmm. they're trying to give you the basics I mean the plots aren't too um confusing they're very uh, easy to follow where you're just following all of these characters having very seductive times very sexually motivated times whether through action or through their dialogue um so I can understand your hesitation with um the, the film overall um but yeah just to I guess I don't know I just you're kind of taken on the merry-go-round ride I think at least for me like you're just I'm I'm sort of sad when it ends because I <laughs> I want to continue on with it but I think what sort of takes away the majority of that sadness is just how wonderfully um the master ceremonies moves around mm-hmm. like I enjoy how the film opens with um like this basically six minute continuous shot on him as he's telling us what we're about to experience and then at the end he throws back on his, I guess, sort of silvery cape. And it's just like, okay, goodbye. You experienced the lives of these French people. Weren't they so wee? Um, <laughs> I can, I feel like if you're kind of waiting for this grand moment to happen by the end, and that's the ending you get, I can sort of understand the hesitation towards it. Yeah. And I, I agree in the sense that like, I like the, if you think about it as vignettes, I, I don't have a favorite either. And that's one thing I do credit it for is that in a lot of the movies where they are kind of like vignettes, very vignette it's like, you know, oftentimes you'll have some that I love, some that are okay. And then some that are just like, what the hell? And that's not an issue here. Um, it's just that they're all kind of like the same for me. You know, there, there's none that I particularly love, but I enjoy all of them. So at least there's none that's like holding it down by any sense yeah I think my favorite sort of performer in this film other than Walbrook is um the wife and uh, Danielle Daru who obviously is even greater in the earrings of Madame de uh, three years later two years whatever French American release I don't know three years later <laughs> let's say um and yeah she's just sort of captivates me as a performer and I think that's why whenever I watch this film I latch most onto her from the very moment the curtain rises in her carriage and you're sort of introduced to just her like heart-stopping beauty and I mm-hmm. think that's why I guess her vignette sticks out most to me is because of my familiarity with her as a performer during this period especially yeah, that makes sense. Christian, do you have any standouts? Or was it all kind of? No, it, I, again, this is a harder watch for me just because of how busy I've been. But I think actually I do have, hold on, I have something written down here about this. Um, if I do have one standout, it is Anton Walbrook. I mean, I do yeah. love, yeah. I just like what he's doing. I like the charismaticness of it all. I don't know. Something about masses of ceremonies that I like. 
Welcome yeah. and be- Brett just like over your head. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It's, I got you. it's cabaret reference, right? Am I missing that? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I did get it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, but no, this one actually did have a little bit of Oscar success. Owen, do you want to mention what it got there? Yeah, it was... Um... We go from no nominations with the previous film to two. Um, we again get another screenplay nomination and an art direction in the black and white category. Because obviously at this time in history, they were awarding both color and black and white films. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a little um, nomination tally, if you ask me, like a bit small in terms of what I would award it to, but... I'm just happy that it's a film that will be remembered because it received Oscar nominations, which is not something you can say about a lot of the great films ever. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the art direction makes a lot of sense. I I think obviously the costumes, I'm a little surprised. Maybe not surprised, but hard to see the art direction and not see the costumes as well. But also the editing too. The editing, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the cinematography, just yeah. a lot of a lot of beautiful production elements to this here, which definitely helps to carry you through the ride, as for lack of a better word, I guess, of this film. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, that is LaRonde. Any final thoughts on that film before we go on to our next one? All right. Well, Christian, you have this one, so take us away. All right, so let's see where are we at here. We've been in a hole. We've been to Africa, the United States, to France, and now on a boat to Europe for a royal wedding. There's literally only one reason why I really wanted to see this again. You'll probably know what it is if you've seen this, but whatever. It is directed by Stanley Donan, and it is a musical starring Fred Astaire, Um, and Jane Powell as brother and sister dance team, Tom and Ellen Bowen. And they're kind of persuaded to attend and dance in their uh, hit Broadway show uh, during the time of the Royal Wedding to then Princess, you know, Princess Liz and Philip, who would then become queen later on. Um, But in their time in uh, now England, they kind of meet some other folks. One, Peter Lawford, who ended up marrying a Kennedy, which I would just find like the most fascinating thing ever as Lord John Brindale. And he and Jane Powell's character sort of, they start a mutual attraction with one another. And then we also have Anne Ashman and Fred Astaire. And Anne Ashman played by Sarah Churchill, daughter of Winston Churchill. Uh, She though has her own supposed fiance whilst Fred Astaire is falling for her. And it's really just a story about you know, just falling for mutual attraction. What do we need to do? Are we falling in love? We're brother, sister. <laughs> Whoa, the way that's worded. Yes, but uh, no, it's it's a very fun film. It's very light. There's not much to it in terms of like the depth of it all. There is a really great scene, which I will spoil, where Fred Astaire dances on the ceiling. That is the biggest reason why I wanted uh, you to watch this if you already haven't. Uh, Owen, I, you probably have seen this, right? Yeah, I've seen this before. And then Brett, you're Brett. So, you know. Yep, exactly. There you go. But that scene alone is like the magic of the movies. It's something that I, the first time I had seen it, was so enthralled with. I kept t- 
taking the DVR that I had of it and kept rewinding it back and forth and like seeing how was that filmed. It's incredible. It's a fun, whimsical little moment in this, in this nice little film. I mean, it's when I say it's a harmless film, it does exactly what it's meant to do. It's a song, it's a dance, it's a musical number. Fred Astaire, I mean, he's as charismatic and charming as ever, as he always really is, though. And that's it. That is Royal Wedding. And it's honestly, I mean, it was nominated. Okay, I will spoil this. It was nominated for one Oscar for one of its songs in there. But to me, it's such like a, it's a, another lowbrow film. So much so you can watch this entire thing on Wikipedia. So go figure <laughs> with that. And when Brett and I were trying to watch it, you were asking me which version I was watching because there's multiple free versions on Amazon. And I'm like, I'm just going with the one that looks the best quality, I guess. Which is still not terrific. Uh, but yeah, it worked out. Owen, what did you think? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's fine. It's not, it's not the greatest that everyone involved has ever been. I mean, Stanley Donan has done such amazing films through, I mean, I think like something like Funny Face, yeah, he did that, is a much greater musical from later this decade, or even something like Singing in the Rain the following year. (laughs) is a greater uh, musical picture but yeah no like I was not that I was surprised this film was chosen when I when you sort of explain um, your love of this filmed sequence especially Christian which it is I mean Christopher Nolan again to come back to him thinks <laughs> he knows how to do a spinning room yes Fred Astaire was dancing all over room 50 years before Inception came out um but yeah it's 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 an okay film it's it's nothing to like write home about and while it did receive that original song nomination um all the songs almost sort of bleed together there's no sort of standout moment for me other than I guess the Astaire number so yeah I'm I'm sort of fine on this one it's not terrible it's just nothing extraordinary yeah, I, I'm I'm around that as well. Um, the Astaire number is incredible. I, it's one of those movie magic moments where, like, even when you know how they did it, you you kind of want to ask yourself, like, gosh, how they do that? How did they think to like put that together? And how did it how did it work out so well? Um, of course, it is Stanley Donan and it is Fred Astaire. If there's anybody who could pull it off, it's those two. So it makes sense, but it's also just. I think you're right, Christian. I think that's the biggest reason to watch the movie is that sequence. And I think the movie has a lot of fun dance sequences. I think to your point, Owen, I don't really remember the songs a whole lot, um, but the dancing is what sticks out to me, like the choreography. Um, And like you said, not that I would put it above things that other folks have done or even like above what Gene Kelly was doing in American in Paris, Um, but it is still a lot of fun. I think to me, musicals are movies that are definitely very hard to make, but also like it's kind of hard to mess up a, a fun musical, you know? And so in that aspect, you know, the movie's enjoyable. The characters likable. I really do like Jane Powell in this. Um, I thought she was just really charming and um, played that character off very well. Um, 
but at the same time, that kind of charming and like that, that kind of hard to mess up sense of it, I think in some ways it's also part of its issue and that there's a lot of opportunity for conflict in this movie that the film just kind of runs away from. Um, this whole time you've got this story of Astaire and Powell and their brother and sister characters. And there's this like underlying tension between them that the film doesn't really explore and it solves really conveniently in the end. Whereas she is kind of this more free spirited, wants to go out and experience the world. And he is very strict. We got to rehearse all the time. I kept waiting for that confrontation to come to a head and it never really got there. Um, and when they're the two main characters in the film, that's where I want to see the big drama coming in. Um, that said, I think their chemistry works sometimes maybe even a little, little bit too much. It's almost like, Oh gosh, when are these two going to end up kissing on screen? Um, and you know, their side romances, honestly, to me are kind of like background. Um, I was much more interested in the two of them and their kind of dynamic with each other. But like I said, it's a lot of fun. And I would watch it again for sure. And I think, like you said, Christian, it's a harmless, fun musical that is really easy to enjoy. It's only 93 minutes long and it does have some really great qualities to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, and also we have, like we've already spoken about an American in Paris is such a big juggernaut film in this year in 1951 and sort of the like a little bit of the same team going with this because um, I guess Alan J. Lerner had done the screenplay and story for this film as well as an American in Paris. And because this was produced by MGM, we also get Arthur Freed as producer. Mm. But obviously it looks like they've pushed more of an American in Paris that year to be something totally bigger. So. Yeah, I mean, for me, the most harmful thing this film did was got Judy Garland out of her MGM contract because she was, I mean, well, the second, I guess, chosen person to play the Jane Powell role before she got fired for not showing up to rehearsal. Um, so I guess there's a positive and a negative in that and that Judy Garland sort of got out of that basically life-threatening um, contract that she was in for MGM, but also sad in the fact that she didn't make a movie for three years until the star is born definitely i have wow i'm actually I, yeah i'm reading what you just said on the wikipedia page i did not know that yeah, i didn't that either. this was the film hmm. Hmm. that's interesting because i could obviously see that like that makes total sense but yeah Yeah, as Christian mentioned, this just had the one nom. Um, and I, yeah, I think we've kind of hit on the head. You've got things like an American in Paris. Two years later, Astaire had the bandwagon. Um, and, you know, a lot of those movies come around around this time. But I think this one does have elements that make it worth watching for sure. Perfect. Awesome. Any final thoughts on that one before we go on to our final movie? Can I preface the final movie? Go for it. It's just something that I thought about. The, the director of our final film, I'm pretty sure we've talked about this director more times than any other director on this here podcast. That would make sense. Owen, do you want to take us away with this one? Yeah, so as Christian pointed out, when introducing the last film, we were introduced to boats, and now we're introduced to trains with... Uh, 
Alfred Hitchcock, Strangers on a Train. Um, yeah, so this film is adapted from the Patricia Highsmith novel. It's basically a story about two men who out of nowhere meet on a train and they're played, there's Guy Haynes, sort of famous ten, um, tennis ball, or tennis ball. <laughs> this is how much I know about sports. I fit a sort of famous tennis player um, meets, um, what is it, Bruno Anthony, played by the soon-to-be-deceased Robert Walker, and they sort of meet on this train, and Bruno sort of hatches a plan for each of them to murder someone in their lives they don't enjoy for Guy it's his ex-wife and for Bruno it's his father and then events sort of take place where one of them one of the two keeps up their sort of not really sort of packed together but in Bruno's head sort of they're packed together where Guy's ex-wife is murdered and then Bruno holds it over Guy's head to be like, yeah, I murdered your wife. We agreed to this. And then things sort of happen in the way that anything happens in Alfred Hitchcock movie where it's really tense. It's really, a lot goes on. It leads up to this really explosive finale, let's say. And yeah, it's, uh, it's just such an incredible film. Like, I mean, Alfred Hitchcock is truly one of the greatest directors ever and this film is just another great example of that um i really enjoy how how unique some of these characters are i mean you have i especially love um patricia hitchcock's barbara character who's just like i feel like if this were set in the modern age she would be listening to all of the murder mystery podcasts like down she would be She's just so inquisitive about everything and it's such a great little character included. And this is, yeah, it's just a really good film. And I guess if you've seen 1987's Throw Mama from the Train, you've, <laughs> you've, you've sort of been introduced to the idea of this film. Um, but this for me is the much greater film achievement. Um, I'm not really a fan of that 80s film. I Sorry, Christian, I can see you reacting in a way where it's of shock. Um, it's a yeah, fun movie. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, this is just an incredible film. And I guess I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say. Have you seen this before, Brett? No. Okay, then I'll go. Um, throw a moment from the train we might talk about later. Ha ha. Um, that is a fun movie. But I've loved, I, this is one of my favorites. Um, I've since deleted my Hitchcock ranking list. I need to go back on that. But this is in my top 10. This was one that really meant a lot to me when I was really discovering more and more about Hitchcock. I took a, I, I said before, but I took a Hitchcock class in 2016. And this was the film that I wrote my big paper on. And it was about how Bruno is sort of like a queer character, if you really, really look hard on it. And I got like an A plus on that. So I'm very proud of that paper. Um, But to me, he is, he has this obsession with Farley Granger's character um, that goes to obviously, you know, the limits of what a human being should be doing. And it's murder. But um, no, this is this is an exciting Hitchcock film. I will give it that. It is one exciting thing. Um, yeah, that's that's all I got. Just I love this. This is one of my favorites. 
Yeah, I, I'm in complete agreement. I mean, Hitchcock, I it's like I don't know how he did it. Like he brings up another movie. It's a new watch for me. It's another Hitchcock to add to, to what I've seen. And you see so many things that are kind of like indicators of, to movies of other movies of his I've seen. Like you got the tennis star. Well, that reminded me of Dial in for Murder. And you got it starts on the train. Well, that reminded me of The Lady Vanishes. And the way that Robert Walker walker appears in the shadows reminded me of joseph cotton in um shadow of adele and it's like all these elements of hitchcock things that like remind me of all of his other movies and yet it still feels so fresh and i appreciate it even more for all those indicators um just because and we say this every time but obviously the, the man had a lot of issues but as a director it was just amazing what he was able to do um I'm in complete agreement that this is just really exciting, you know, from a pure excitement level and, and that sense of it, it, it's one of the most exciting, I think. Um, But Robert Walker is just phenomenal. I mean, he is terrifying in this movie in a way that you may not normally expect a a villainous character to, to be terrifying because he seems so charismatic and friendly. And then you find out there's something deeper seated there that is really dark and um, troublesome. And that all comes to out layer by layer and works really well. Um, he, it's like the way that you're describing that kind of feels how later on you would get Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates. Yeah. Although it's, yeah. it's not like a charismatic character. It's more of a innocent looking figure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like you, you know, if go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I, to bring it back to, I guess, Ed Christian's sort of queer codedness of the film. I think a lot of that has to do with Patricia Highsmith's involvement because Mm -hmm. obviously, I mean, two of her massive novels are the price of salt, which obviously turned into Carol, which was sort of her almost, I guess, autobiographical tale of, her obsession with the woman and then even something like the Ripley series which obviously mm-hmm. is queer coded itself and you're told like I can I mean I can understand why someone would want to fall in love with Farley Granger he's such a easily attractive looking male um to become obsessed with but no the Robert Walker character does share sort of those similarities I guess with the Norman Bates character which is another thing you could go into about the queer characters who are villainized that's a whole series someone could do because there's so many that are turned into villains because they just can't be who they want to truly be because of how restrictive a society they live in um but no this like even the scene with his mother where we're first introduced to their relationship with one another and how just maniacally he laughs at the photo that he um relates his father it's just yeah. a wild performance and like knowing Robert Rucker is one of those actors who was tormented by so many things in his life I mean basically before this movie he lost the lo- almost the love of his life due to David O'Selznick sort of taking Jennifer Jones away from him and knowing that he would I think I think he this year committed suicide so I think I think that's true um so just knowing the demons he was living with at the time it's really impressive how effective he can be in this role because of how much he was struggling in his true life 
well, no, this this is just like an incredible film. And when I first approached wanting to do 1951 with you guys, I knew this would be one of my two films that I had to choose because it's just that great. I mean, yeah. and it's like I said earlier, it's telling that we keep either, no, yeah, we keep picking these Hitchcock films and they keep turning out to be some of like the best films that we watch. And this is not, oh, this yeah. is no doubt, this is another good one. Yeah. And it is sad to think about this is one of, yeah, it is the second, it's the penultimate Robert Walker performance because there was one released after his death. And he's so good in this because I love me a villain. Like yeah. I'm always, I'm always for the villain everywhere. It's like, he's so good in this. <laughs> he's amazing. And there are times I was like, is he going to win? Like there are legitimately times as I'm watching this movie and it's so suspenseful and thrilling that I'm like, how is Farley Granger going to get out of this? Like what, what is going to come about? That's going to save him from this. And it leads to a really dramatic conclusion which on one hand, I'm like, this is kind of nuts. But on the other, I'm like, this is so exciting that it's it's amazing. Um, that final scene and it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, he basically wins up until he can no longer. I don't know. I can I? I don't know. Can we spoil? Let's let's film? say yeah. Spoiler alert! If you haven't okay. watched it, want to watch it? Watch it now. Come back. But yeah, yeah let, seventy years. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, exactly. So. I'm not spoiling a film that came out a month ago, so I think right. I'm okay. <gasps> yes. Um, <laughs> <The gag>. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> it's just like wild how it takes his character dying for him to finally lose because he can no longer hold on to the the lighter, you know? Like it's it's like the, how the film it gets so tense towards the end, starting from the tennis match like how the tennis match is edited alongside Robert Walker making his way back to the the carnival is just incredible like this is really strong editing like it, you're just like tense the entire time you're like oh my god he's going to lose and what is happening and I really want him to win but I like he's just so dumb and <laughs> the Robert Walker character while while psychotic is totally knows what he's doing because obviously he's planned everything. He planned meeting the Farley Granger character long and hatching this plan long before he ever met him perchance on a train. I mean, he probably followed him knowing what train he'd get anyway. It's just like so tense, but also such a thrill ride at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that tennis match, I'm still just kind of on the edge of my seat about that. Oh, come on gotta win this thing and yeah it, it's it's unreal it's hitchcock i mean mm -hmm. one of my favorite shots in, in the film involves the tennis match because you have well not the last tennis match but the first tennis match where you just have the shot of the crowd and everyone is moving their head side to side except for <laughs> bruno and it's an <laughs> it's an incredible crazy shot and goes to show how just the movement of real people can make a beautiful shot. I feel like a lot of directors nowadays who try to emulate Alfred Hitchcock, because a lot of them do, yes. really should pair things back and really sort of understand it's not just about the shock value. It's about it making 
physical sense. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, this did get one Oscar nomination. Owen, did you want, want to mention what that was? Yeah, it got a nomination for cinematography the, in the black and white category, a very earned nomination. Um, I think it lost to, I want to say, A Place in the Sun. It feel, that feels like it could be correct. I didn't look it up. <laughs> Hopefully, as I speak, one of you is looking it Yeah, it was A Place in the Sun. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, A Place in the Sun is a beautiful film, but like Strangers <laughs> on a Train is even more beautiful. And I didn't think that ever be possible, but it is. It's, oh, like, this is peak Alfred Hitchcock. And the fact that it wasn't fully appreciated in its time as it is now is horrible to me just because I guess there are these conversations about Alfred Hitchcock and sort of how he's a pulp filmmaker where it's all about making you feel tense and just like really challenging your mind. Mm -hmm. And films like that weren't necessarily appreciated in their time as much as they are now. And there's a reason why people consider Alfred Hitchcock one of the best. And if you're basing it solely on this film, you totally understand why. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely agree with that. Well, obviously, I, I think we'd all agree that um, this probably should have received more nominations. And I'm sure we'll have some in our personals coming up in a little bit, but definitely one that we all recommend very highly. Um, I'll had a great love for it. Any final thoughts on Strangers on a Train before we move on to our next segment? Give throw mama from the tr- train is decent. <laughs> Owen! Maybe that's why I have such a negative reaction to it is because she constantly screams my name oh. in the film. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the inner part of myself just realizing this no i it's it's fine you know it's it's harmless it resulted in a a sort of a a nomination that i'm uh yeah oh i don't have this sorry anne ramsey (laughs) i don't have strong feelings about you but if if Throw Mama from the Train leads people to watch this movie, then <laughs> there you go, go ahead and watch Throw Mama from the Train. <laughs> and it's from 1987, Brett. I, yeah, I was just looking at that. Um, we'll, we'll have 1987 coming up, so maybe it will make an appearance there. But <laughs> All right. Well, we have some honorable slash dishonorable mentions here. Are we ready to dive into some of those? Yeah. All right. Now, Owen, I know you mentioned you've seen, what, 150 plus movies from this year? Is I that what think you said? 100, no, okay. like 110. 110. Okay. St- still oh. like, a lot of movies. Um, so, yes, you, the listener, we're going to go through 110 movies here. No, no, just kidding. We, we've got a list here. <laughs> uh, I, I said, uh, I told Owen that. You know, you don't have to go through all of them, just any that you enjoy and and whatnot and want to say anything about. So we do have a list here and we'll go through some of these and give some brief thoughts. Um, So our first one up is A Christmas Carol, the Alastair Sim version, 
one that I enjoy. I, I think it's it's not the best, but it's one of the better ones. Um, yeah. Christian, it's good. I don't remember okay. it because you okay. know you know the only Christmas Carol I acknowledge is what it is the Muppets Christmas Carol, which I agree with. That is That's correct. Yeah, yeah, we're all in agreement there. It's better um, than the Jim Carrey version. I also agree with that. Miles I actually watched better. both last year, so yeah, I agree with that. Uh, next, we have the Disney animated version of Alice in Wonderland masterpiece oh i grew up with it so i mean yeah i really enjoy it don't go anywhere near the tim burton version you'll regret it with your life (laughs) um next we have angels in the outfield not the 90s version i grew up with um i like this one i never saw it but yeah it intrigued me. So it's, it's okay. I don't know if Angels in the Outfield is my favorite um, story in either version. That's fair. Uh, next, we have Bright Victory, which I know was nominated for some Oscars that year. Yeah, I think Arthur Kennedy got a Best Actor nomination for it, his, his sole lead nomination. Um, wow. he, he's fine in it. It's it's not a great movie and he sort of comes in a lesser spot when you look at the actors he was nominated against in that year, especially. Makes sense. All right. Next we have corn chips. Donald Duck and Chippendale. I mean, oh, okay. There you go. I've not seen a lot of these short, um, films my short animated films are especially a sore spot for me but due to the new short film podcast the animated short one i'm improving on what i'm seeing nice i guess i want to give a shout out to that podcast which i've guested on before it's got a it's um i think it's jack jackson's stefano hosted oh okay and cool it delves into the nominees for best animated short from the very beginning and so because of that podcast, I'm now catching up on all of these short films, with the majority wow. of them being Disney products. <laughs> Makes sense, yep. Because because the first 10 years of that category were won by Walt Disney films. <laughs> That's cool. I hadn't heard of that podcast, so I'm looking forward to checking that out. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, next we have uh, Death of a Salesman, which is the only version I've seen. I- I've read the play. Um I really enjoy it. I really liked Frederick March in it. I thought he was tremendous. He's very good. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very good. I guess I, I recently rewatched Subdish and uh, obviously <laughs> the, the dinner theater production of Death of a Salesman in that film. Um, and so that was my most recent experience of the Death of a Salesman. Um, but no, I, it's really good. And um, oh my God, what's her name? Who's nominated for supporting actress? I can't believe I'm forgetting um, her. I was just looking at that. Um, Mildred was no Mildred Dunnick. Mildred Dunnick. Mildred Dunnick yeah. was very good as um, Willie Loman's wife, yes. and even Kevin McCarthy I thought was very good as Billy. Absolutely. 
death of a salesman, the laugh riot of the century. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. Uh, next, we have Detective Story. This is the other um, Kirk Douglas film we talked about. I thought the lesser of the two. It, it's it's kind of interesting, but um, let's just say where the other film did not have that throwaway redemption arc. I can't say the same for this one. So, I go. I you go to this film for Kirk Douglas, and you come out of it only talking about the women. Yeah, for me at least. I mean, Lee like, Grant. Lee Grant in her film debut before she got uh, blacklisted in the film industry um, is isn't she's an interesting performance it's definitely very method in like she's <laughs> all the ticks are there but for me that film is about Eleanor Parker who obviously got a best actress mm. nomination is she lead enough to be best actress I don't think so but I think she's no. uh, towards the end of that film she's just like marvelous as she breaks down revealing all these emotions and Eleanor Parker is an actress who not a lot of people talk about in terms of one of the greats because her film output is just not as well known as a lot of her contemporaries but if you watch something like Detective Story I think you can understand why she was considered one of the greats at the time yeah definitely she's really good in it as well I agree I didn't get a chance to see it (laughs) <laughs> yeah we're worth watching for the women yeah um next we have father's little dividend which the, the title still makes me laugh um the sequel, the sequel to, to father, father the, bride. the bride yeah it's such a terrible title i hate this <laughs> title <laughs> so this was the other vincent minnelli movie this year um <laughs> so you're bet for me you're better to watch him in american in paris than father's little dividend which is just a Definitely the worst of the Father of the Bride sequels, if you're also throwing in the 90s. It's weird how a lot of the honorable mentions have remakes. I'm just realizing this mm. now. This is like the fifth one. True. Wow. Um, so next we have The Lemon Drop Kid. It's a nice Christmas movie with Bob Hope. And you get the introduction of Silver Bells. Silver Bells, yeah. Yeah. I remember watching it one post Thanksgiving when I was like wrapping gifts and TCM had it on and that's where I discovered it. And I was like, Hey, this is nice. Yeah. Silver Bells is an incredible original song and which keeps my hope in the original song category, because sometimes they do recognize songs that last the uh, mm. centuries which this song definitely has but well especially at christmas time i guess yeah so next we have a vittorio de sica film miracle in milan i think th- this might have actually been eligible dif- eligible a different year but it didn't get any nominations and it was released in 51 so i just included it here um don't go in expecting his typical italian neorealists fair this one's a lot more has more fantasy elements to it, I'll say. But I found it really interesting and pretty good. So. Yeah, it's good. Uh, next, we had Orpheus, which I think we actually talked a little bit about before on the 1950 episode as well. Um, that's one that's certainly been remade in, in a lot of different ways. Um, but I really enjoyed that one as well. I watched it for our 1950 podcast. So, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I liked it then. Yeah. 
Yeah, really no, good. I really like it as well, which is why I listed it because um, I wanted to list another international film because it's it's incredible. It's John yeah. Cocteau, who obviously is one of those great fr- French French directors. Sorry, I so, sometimes with international films, I'm like, which where are they from again? <laughs> I feel that. Uh, next, we have Rabbit Fire. That's the beginning of the whole oh. rabbit. It, yeah, it's a trilogy of things. Nice. I've not seen this. You haven't? I my I'm animated short. It's a short, isn't it? I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. Again, my animated shorts is so like I haven't seen a lot of them, so that is why it's being corrected currently. I will eventually get to this. Let's say definitely see that because it's like I said, it's a trilogy of them. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Uh, next, we have Summer Interlude. You forgot Rudy Toot Toot. Oh, sorry. I was skipping. <laughs> Rudy Toot Toot. Apologize. It's another apologize it's, film. It's the winner of the short film for this year. Okay. I was, I was... Honestly, I don't remember it, except I remember it being loud. I was going to ask which oh, one of these won, so good to know. All right, now we have Summer Interlude, Ingmar Bergman film, which I thought was pretty terrific. Um, really lovely. Yeah, I consider, I think this was eligible in 1954, I want to say, unless I'm wrong. And it's that's that's at probably least, right. In, at least in my recent 1954 film watching, I watched it for the first time and thought it was pretty incredible as well and had it really strong leading actress performance playing a sort of aged ballet dancer who has fond flashbacks of her previous life yeah so if that's the type of a film you want to watch it has everything you want yeah i agree with that that's a nice way to put it christian have you seen that one i have but i do not remember it because that was during when we took that international films class yeah that i was like Ingmar Bergman, I'm going to watch everything you've ever made. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's fair. Mm. Well, at least when you watch Ingmar Bergman, there's a lot of great women in his films. Uh, yes, absolutely. Which is, not something, which is not something you can say about a lot of the supposed auteurs of today. <laughs> yes. Oh. So next we have um, the other 1950s science fiction one we mentioned earlier, which is The Thing from Another World. I cannot for the life of me get around this movie. Like, I don't like it. I saw it years ago. I don't remember it, to be honest. I I remember thinking it was okay, but I don't really remember it much. Like the, 19, the John Carpenter 80s version is the superior version. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No uh, question. Yeah. Next, we have oh. The Well. Which is a decent, like, you know, uh, I think I told you about it, but a little girl falls in a well. Right. And yeah, and she's black, and they blame this white guy on kidnapping her. But then eventually they find the well, and the whole movie is basically getting her out of the well. But with the town at very racial, it's a very racially segregated town. Yeah. I liked it, like, a lot. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I did too. Yeah, sounds fascinating. And I'm. It's like for whatever reason, I had all these movies lined up. I got busy, but the well I watched. 
I totally forgot to write it down after you told me about it. Now I'm disappointed, but yeah, sounds interesting. And last but not least, we have Westward the Women. I don't remember anything about this movie. My big story about it is it was one of the movies that my fourth grade teacher had shown our class that really got me into older films. Oh. It's the only memory that I have of it. That's an interesting choice of movie to show your fourth graders. That we watched that. We watched El Dorado, Singing in the Rain, The Ten Commandments. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. He was, he was like, here's a movie. And we all sat and watched. And it hit it. The only person it affected was this one. <laughs> I think I only remember Hope Emerson from Westward, the women, um, in her, I guess, post Oscar nominated role. All right. Well, those are our honorable slash dishonorable mentions, mostly honorable. Sound like with those. Um, and so we may see some of those come up in our next segment, which is, of course, our personal awards. And so we'll do what we normally hear, do here. We'll start the screenplays and go from there. And so, Christian, do you want to go first or last this time? I'll go first. Okay. So, Christian, go ahead and take us away with your nominees and winner for Best Adapted Screenplay. Okay. My nominees are number five, A Place in the Sun. Number four, Death of a Salesman. Number three, Strangers on a Train. Number two, Alice in Wonderland. And my winner is a streetcar named Desire. All right, Owen, let's go to you next. What do you got? Um, yeah, so I, I didn't rank these, but I guess I'll read out the five and then my winner. Um, so the five that I would have nominated would be Detective Story, The Ronde, A Place in the Sun, Strangers on a Train, and then my winner is, as well, A Streetcar Named Desire. All right. So um, I had, I hope these are all adapted. I forgot to check right before. Uh, number five, I have a place in the sun. Number four, the African queen. Number three, death of a salesman. Number two, strangers on a train. And my winner is also a streetcar named Desire. All right, Christian, let's take it away with original. All right. Original is hard because I feel like I did not watch enough original movies. So here we go. Number five is Royal Wedding. Number four is Angels in the Outfield. Number three is The Well. Number two is An American in Paris. And my winner is Ace in the Hole or The Big Carnival. All right. Owen takes away with yours. Um, so my nominees would be The Enforcer, The Model and the Marriage Broker, The Secret of Convict Lake, The Well, and then my winner as well is Ace in the Hole. All right, so my number five is Seven Days to Noon. I forgot to put that on the honorable mentions, if that tells you anything about this movie. Um, <laughs> it's basically just a category filler. I didn't think it was all that great. Um, number four is Royal Wedding. Number three, An American in Paris. Number two, Ace in the Hole. And number one, I put Summer Interlude, just because I included it with this year. So, All right, Christian, let's go on to Best Supporting Performance. Okay. So at number, oh, let me fix this here. Okay. At number 10, I have Anton Walbrook for La Ronde. Number nine, I have Mildred Dunnick for Death of a Salesman. Number eight, I have Verna Felton for Alice in Wonderland. She is the Queen of Hearts. Uh, where are we at? Seven, I have Nina 
Folk for An American in Paris. Number six, Edwin for Alice in Wonderland as the Mad Hatter. Number five, Patricia Hitchcock in Strangers on a Train. And then Kevin McCarthy. Oh, he's a politician. I'm sorry. He's <laughs> like, wait, that name sounds familiar. Kevin McCarthy in Death of a Salesman, who plays um, his son. Damn it. At number three, Carl Malden for A Streetcar Named Desire. Two, Kim Hunter for A Streetcar Named Desire. And my winner is Robert Walker for Strangers on a Train. Interesting. <laughs> um so yeah my supporting nominees again i it basically just amounted to five women and five men um so my nominees would be richard benedict for ace in the hole maurice evans for kind lady carl Malden for streetcar named desire robert newton for oliver twist everett sloan for the enforcer maria casaras for orpheus daniel daru for uh, laurent Kim Hunter for A Streetcar Named Desire, uh, Andrea Palma for Aventura, and Eleanor Parker for Detective Story. And then, oh my God, if I'm forced to choose a win- one winner, I guess I'm going Kim Hunter um, for A Streetcar. Both great choices. Um, and number 10, I have Patricia Hitchcock for Tr- Strangers on a Train. Number nine, I have Hans Christian Bleck for Decision Before Dawn. Uh, number eight, Mildred Dunnock for Death of a Salesman. Number seven, Anton Walbrook for La Ronde. Number six, Nina Folk. Is that what we said? Nina Folk, an American in Paris. Uh, number five, Carl Malden for A Streetcar Named Desire. Number four, Elizabeth Taylor for A Place in the Sun. Number three, Kim Hunter for A Streetcar Named Desire. Number two, Hildegard Neff for Decision Before Dawn. And my number one is Robert Walker for strangers on a train. All right. Going on to lead. I'm sure this, this was, is going to be interesting. Um, and see what we have at the top. So Christian, take us away here. At number 10, Catherine Hepburn for the African queen. At number nine, Shelley Winters for a place in the sun. At eight, Jean Kelly for an American in Paris. Seven, Humphrey Bogart for the African queen. Six, Farley Granger for strangers on a train. Five, Kirk Douglas for Ace in the Hole. Four, Montgomery Clift for A Place in the Sun. Three, Oscar Werner for Decision Before Dawn. Two, Frederick March for Death of a Salesman. And my winner, as I always reference, I nominated Miss Piggy so I can do whatever the hell I want to do, is a tie. It is both Marlon Brando and Vivian Lee. Vivian Lee and Marlon Brando for a streetcar named Desire. Performances. That makes sense. I was like, did I hear Marlon? Did I hear, like, did one of those get left off? I was like, what? Okay, that makes sense. To quote, to quote Tammy Brown, ha, ha, I'm acting. Oh, oh, I'm acting. <laughs> <laughs> and to Brett, um, Brett is just like what? yeah this, I, i'm just enjoying this yeah you know mm-hmm. yeah come on tell it to me my 10 are richard attenborough for brighton rock marlon brando for a streetcar montgomery clift for a place in the sun 
Kirk Douglas for Ace the Hole, Robert Walker for Strangers on a Train, uh, Betty Davis for Payment on Demand, Catherine Hepburn for The African Queen, Vivian Lee for A Streetcar Named Desire, Thelma Ritter for The Model and the Marriage Maker, or sorry, Broker, and Shelley Winters for A Place in the Sun. And because Christian has given the possibility of a tie, I too will tie Marlon Brando and Vivian Lee. I think that's a very earned tie with the meeting of the heads of the different acting styles coming head to head and being extraordinary together. All right. So number 10, I have Jane Powell. Number nine, Montgomery Cliff, or for Royal Wedding. Number nine, Montgomery Cliff for A Place in the Sun. Number eight, Kirk Douglas for Ace in the Hole. Number seven, Shelley Winters for A Place in the Sun. Number six, Madge Britt Nilsson for Summer Interlude. Number five, Catherine Hepburn for The African Queen. Number four, Humphrey Bogart for The African Queen. Number three, Frederick March for Death of a Salesman. And I was going to separate them, but you know what? Let's just go ahead and make it a tie because you know what? Why not? Like you both said, they're both equally deserving. Vivian Lee and Marlon Brando Street Carning Desire, because it is really hard to separate. I was going to give the slight edge to Vivian Lee, but it's by so little that I don't know. I Yeah, they're hard to separate. So I'm, I'm cool with call, calling that a tie straight, aqua, straight across. <laughs> All right. Best director, Christian, take us away. Director, here we go. Okay, number five, Billy Wilder for Ace in the Hole. Number four, Vincent Minnelli for An American in Paris. Three, John Huston for The African Queen. And number two, Alfred Hitchcock for Strangers on a Train. And my winner is Elia Kazan for A Streetcar Named Desire. It's cool. Uh, so my nominees are Jean Cocteau for uh, Orpheus, Alfred Hitchcock for Strangers on a Train, Max Ophus for Le Ronde, George Stevens for A Place in the Sun, and again, Ilya Kazan is my winner for a Streetcar Named Desire. I think if you're noticing by my rankings, it's a very similar film being awarded every time. <laughs> very fair. Uh, so my number five is John Huston for The African Queen. Number four, I have Vincent Minnelli for An American Paris. Number three, I have Ingmar Bergman for Summer Interlude. Number two, I have Elia Kazan for A Streetcar Named Desire. And I gave it to good old Alfred Hitchcock for Strangers on a Train. All right. Yeah, had to be different. Christian, best picture, the big one. Take us away. Number 10, Royal Wedding. Number nine, Death of a Salesman. Number eight, Ace in the Hole. Number seven, The Well. Number six, An American in Paris. Number five, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Number four, Alice in Wonderland. Number three, The African Queen. Number two, Strangers on a Train. And number one, the big one, boom, boom, it's Quo Vitus. Thank you. <laughs> Or a streetcar, or a streetcar named Desiree. <laughs> I don't um, know if I mentioned so... it for, for the longest time. I used to call the movie Streetcar Named Desiree because I didn't realize it was called Desire. <laughs> Fair enough. I could imagine Blanche pronouncing Desire as Des Desiree. <laughs> 
um so this is the first time well i'll actually be ranking things because i do have a top 10 ranking from this year and so number 10 is aventura number nine is brighton rock number eight is detective story number seven is contiki number six is orpheus number five is a place in the sun or sorry number five is ace in the hole number four is a place in the sun number three is la ronde Number two is Strangers on a Train. And number one is a little known film, Desire Named Streetcar Rap. <laughs> All right. So my number 10 is Miracle in Milan. Number nine is Ace in the Hole. Number eight, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Number seven, Death of a Salesman. Uh, number six, A Christmas Carol. Number five, An American in Paris. Number four, A Streetcar Named Desire. <laughs> number three, Summer Interlude. Number two, The African Queen. And number one, Strangers on a Train. Oh, okay. To be fair, I still haven't rewatched Streetcar Named Desire. So when I eventually get to that, maybe it'll go up. But top four. I just want to say, I just want to say, even though I didn't, consider summer interlude eligible for this year i can totally support each of your mentions for that great film it's a Thank wonderful you. ingmar bergman a film that christian you really should watch i know i have to see it again yeah it's it's really good yeah i really enjoyed it mm-hmm. all right well I, did, I, I will say too i will say too really quick i did have troubles between strangers on a train and streetcar just going against one another but yeah yeah, That's me fair. too. I, I sort of, I almost, bef- I almost wanted to just award a different film in every category, but then I just was like, I mean, Streetcar is my favorite movie ever, so yeah, I would feel, yeah. I'd feel incorrect not awarding it everything. Absolutely, gotta go with your heart. Absolutely. Well, and I think we, um, we showed overall with the personal awards between the three of us, there were definitely two defining films from this year, and they were those two. And so um, amongst a lot of different good movies from this year. So this has been great. Obviously, for all those listening, thanks once again. Um, always appreciate you all listening in the support. Um, as always, rate, review, subscribe wherever you listen. Thanks to Joshua Arnoldi for doing our theme music. If you haven't seen any of these movies that we mentioned, go check them out. Uh, be sure to tune in next time where, as Christian mentioned, we will be diving into the year 1987. I'm uh, going back to the eighties. So that'll be fun. Um, Owen, thanks so much for joining us once again. This was such a great time. Glad you're able to come on anything, any final thoughts you have, anything you'd like to plug or anything like that. Um, yeah, no, it was wonderful coming on. I had such a great time delving back into a lot of these great 1951 films definitely an underrated year for film i think um in terms of plugging i guess you can find me mainly on twitter talking about film um my handle is my name just with an i in daily and whereas my real name excludes the i and then you can also find me on letterbox through my twitter where you can, if you really want to delve into all the films from 1951 I've seen, I have a list totally dedicated to my nominees in every single category that year um, and other years as well. And I'm working my way through completing sort of yearly projects. Um, But yeah, no, that's where you can find me. Um, 
I look forward to listening to your 1987 episode. Again, that's a really strong year for film. I guess yeah. since I, I, I guess my favorite film from that year is a John Huston film. Actually, it's um, The Dead. <laughs> so you're sort of connecting those episodes together through directors. Um, his, obviously his final film there. That's a really incredible film and has a really special place in my heart. So I look, I hope it is mentioned by someone in the podcast at some point. I'm sure we will. We were actually just talking about that earlier today. So I'll be sure to have that on my list um, to watch that one for sure. Christian, any final thoughts from you? Yes. I wanted to do this in the last podcast and it was an oversight. I want to personally invite Karina Longworth onto our show we mentioned her numerous times in various episodes so if you're listening or if anybody knows how to get to her hi you're welcome to join us i i'm totally down with that i second that completely i'm just gonna say that every single episode karina longworth until until she comes on there you go all right well thanks as always for listening and be sure to tune in next time See ya.